Off the Bench is a podcast created by ASCLS that will discuss the scientific and not so scientific ideas in laboratory medicine. We are joined by members of ASCLS, fellow scientists, educators, and researchers, along with those interested in the profession. We share ideas and talk nerdy. Hello, Lavocates, and welcome to another episode of the Off the Bench podcast. My name is Galena. I'll be one of your hosts for today's episode. And I am Justin, aka Flying Labrat. You can find me on Twitter. I am also going to be one of your hosts for today's episode. And if you are a medical laboratory educator, you likely have attended or at least have heard of the Clinical Laboratory Educators Conference hosted by ASCLS. Um, For those of you who may not know about it, it is the most impactful annual gathering for faculty, administrators, directors, advisors, and anyone else that's in some way participating in the medical laboratory education field. Um, It was just hosted in Denver, Colorado, and in the spirit of that gathering, we wanted to bring you an episode that addresses education science. And, you know, whether we're talking about university or hospital-based MLS programs, whether we're talking about clinical rotations, new hire training, whatever it may be, And if you may be thinking, well, maybe this isn't the conversation for me because I'm not a formal educator, I really urge you to stick with us because we're all teachers in one aspect or another, and you never know how the tools we talk about in today's episode will be applicable. So with that, our experts today are Dr. Justin Kruder, uh, Associate Professor in Lab Medicine and Pathology at Mayo Clinic. Welcome back to Off the Bench. Hey, thanks so much for having me. And we have Teresa Malin, who is the Curriculum and Assessment Manager for Mayo Clinic College of Medicine and Science with uh, an MLS background. Welcome to the show. Thank you. It's great to be here. Before we get started answering some questions about education science, you know, what the current practices are, how we can improve those practices, et cetera. Um, can you tell us how both of you got involved in the education field, um, especially as it pertains to medical laboratory science? How did you get here? What's your curiosity um, and who your current audience is for your roles? Sure. I'll uh, kick off then. Um, so I started as a medical laboratory scientist, as a generalist and came to Mayo Clinic, specialized more in transfusion medicine. And I just have always absolutely loved lab medicine and um, teaching gives you an opportunity to nerd out about whatever it is that you're doing and share your passion with others. And so it was just kind of a natural progression and an opportunity came up to teach uh, across the health professions education spectrum in transfusion medicine. And I jumped on it. And so in that role, I was able to teach uh, medical laboratory scientists, uh, staff within the department and residents and fellows and visiting consultants and medical students and stuff and got to talk about transfusion medicine all day, every day. Um, So that was kind of where I found my passion. And then I specialized, decided to specialize in education. When I came across the education approach of, here's a PowerPoint slide, I'm gonna sit you in a warm room, talk to you for 45 minutes straight, and you're gonna know everything by the time you walk out of the door and that's it. And sitting in that room, you know, we've all been there and it was like, there has to be a better way and I'm gonna figure it out. And so that was kind of my pathway through to where I'm at right now. And right now I serve all of health professions education through the college. Mayo Clinic has five schools. And so there's a little bit of each part of medicine kind of coming through the college. And so I have the opportunity to work with educators and learners across medicine. I hope for any MLS out there that's interested in getting into education, 
this is an inspiring pathway because I haven't heard of this, right? You know, we're thinking uh, you, you get back into university and you teach at a university level. So it's really wonderful to hear that there's uh, the pathway that you took. Uh, what about you, Justin? So for me, I was, I've been an educator for a long time. I was that person that, you know, as a dorm rat in college and undergrad, uh, I was uh, an, an RA in that environment and so got to uh, do some teaching then and even in medical school, uh, you know, when I would be on break uh, during medical school, I, I substitute taught uh, math at a nearby high school <laughs> on my break. So I've kind of come into medicine with that kind of bent uh, for education. And I think uh, that and my love for team sports probably drove me into transfusion medicine and laboratory uh, medicine. Uh, and uh, now I get to have my dream job where I'm teaching similar to Teresa's across the spectrum where I teach uh, pathology, immunology, and transfusion medicine in our medical school. Uh, I get to run our, um, our fellowship program and participate in our residency program. And then I've also gotten to dabble with some continuing medical education, uh, running and uh, establishing courses. So uh, across the spectrum as well. May I just say that Mayo is very lucky to have you both uh, because just hearing your background and how passionate you are about the topic, um, and, and I have encountered other individuals throughout my career that are equally as passionate and driven and, and truly go by the uh, ideology that teaching is a work of heart. And at the same time, it also makes me compare to some of the, of the not so fun encounters that I've had in education, right? We can talk about an MLS in school. There are certain topics that you have to learn just by brute force of uh, memorization. And it's really tough to make those topics fun. And then when you expand from that, you know, you get into your clinical rotations and remembering how there was one day where... My preceptor took me right away, set me down at a computer and pulled up the SOPs for how to run these chemistry analyzers. And that's all she had me do. Um, there was zero engagement, right? So you can kind of pick apart these little pieces from every part of your education. And there's a, there's a lot of room for improvement about what the system currently is um, and how we can get better. The first thing that I uh, wanted to ask you about is, what paradigms in education need to change in our field? So I, I just, I have to respond to, to your description <laughs> there, kind of, because I think it's a shared experience that many of us have when we, when we did those clinical rotations or even on the job training, right? Where somebody's like, all right, I'm going to sit you down here. I'll see you in six hours after you're done reading this entire manual. You're, you're not going to retain much of that information, but on the flip side, I don't think many people are doing that because they really do believe that's the best way that people are going to learn, right? It's like they're busy and here this keeps you on my hair for a couple hours. I think a part of those paradigms about what needs to change in education is for me, I think about how can we use technology to transform what we're doing so we're more efficient and that it kind of gets at the root of that problem. So one is, you know, it can create more time for other things. So you can do other things that you'd rather be spending your time on if there's some of these building blocks that we can leverage technology to help us with. When I think about paradigm shifting, you know, COVID gave us a huge leap forward when it came to some of the digital transformations or just getting some people comfortable with technology and teaching in a digital space. 
But if nothing really changed in the way you were teaching from in the classroom to over Zoom or some other technology, then there's still an opportunity to do something differently there. Because when you talk about digital transformations and changing those paradigms, technology really allows us in many ways to transform how we're teaching, not just changing a Word document or an essay into you know, a document that's in the cloud, but really reimagining what is it that we want our learners to be able to take away and then working backwards to say, okay, well, how might we assess that they're successful at this? And then what activities do I need them to do to be able to achieve that? And then building in what would that activity look like? Because the technology that's available now really allows us to creatively approach some of those problem spaces in a way that it doesn't have to be, we're all gonna sit in a room for three hours and I'm gonna lecture at you for an hour and a half of it. And then, okay, now here, go read this manual and and you know we'll, we'll discuss things together at the end. Um, it really allows us to flip that and it gives independence back to the learner where they can learn where they wanna learn, learn how they wanna learn. Um, and it gives some time back to the instructors as well in the sense of if you can record a lecture and allow your learners to watch it ahead of time at double speed, they're saving time, you're saving time. And now the time you spend together, actually physically in person, you can use for so much else. Um, and we can move from just a, okay, I have this content knowledge. I have this procedural knowledge because I've learned the physical process of doing the task into more of a conceptual knowledge. And it, it becomes really helpful when you're trying to master complex or abstract things like the coagulation cascade and really understanding, okay, this is what it looks like on paper. What does it actually look like in the human body? And it allows medical laboratory scientists to troubleshoot, right? So when you think about adaptive expertise, right? We have routine expertise that allows us to get through our day every day. And adaptive expertise is what we need so we can troubleshoot when things aren't going the way that they normally do, which is something medical laboratory scientists run into every day. You know, if I can build on and give an example to Teresa's brilliant answer, uh, in, in transfusion medicine here, uh, obviously, uh, we, we teach our learners about transfusion reactions. And one of my colleagues that gives that lecture, uh, she was giving the lecture and it's just like she was getting burned out from doing it because it was, you know, we have new anesthesia residents every two weeks. So it was like every two weeks she was giving the same lecture with the, you know, okay, uh, the transfusion, we got febrile, we've got taco, we've got so on and so forth. And it was taking a lot of time and, you know, it's somebody's passively listening to this information. Lord knows how much is going to get retained as they go forward in their career. And these are anesthesia residents at the front lines of people getting transfused that we want to be able to use this knowledge. And, uh, uh, she and I uh, worked together and what she ended up doing was giving that knowledge, what Teresa was talking about, about giving that, uh, you know, textbook uh, evergreen basic knowledge ahead of time that, you know, here's this, you know, for example, textbook chapter that I like on transfusion reactions. So they get those fundamentals. And then now her lecture time uh, with those learners they're all coming into that lecture space having already understand understood you know what are these different transfusion reactions and a couple basics about them and so now her conversations are all those conversations about you know what Teresa was talking about is those adaptive skills of like 
how do you use uh, medical reasoning in those challenging cases? You know, how can you separate these things and, and or how might you might do your hospital practices differently? And so not only is the amount of time that she is spending with the anesthesia residents in the example that I'm saying is less, but she's actually having fun because that conversation is a little different each time because as all of us are adult learners, we're all coming in with some different background and experience to keep dialogue back and forth with the learner. And, and what Teresa is setting us up for is by having learning being that conversation, that's how we can start to guide our learners, not be that, you know, that lecture uh, giving people this information, but how we can really, you know, guide our learners to have the, that sophisticated understanding in their minds. And similarly, I think that you're describing a flipped classroom setting where the learner starts doing their own pre-work and then the high level synthesis is happening with an instructor at hand, which it's very interesting because I've always uh, looked at, at that concept with the lens of the learner and how it solves problems for the learner to make it more engaging and learning and, and, and to hear you then say, well, this also helps the instructor so that they're not just repeating the same stuff over and over again. That's actually how at, at the U of M, the University of Minnesota, that's how most of our classes are taught is the flipped classroom. But now what, what happened with COVID or maybe beforehand even for your team as well is you've now added the technology component to it and say, how can we really master the technology piece for and apply it to the flipped classroom? Right away though, um, what are some of the drawbacks of that kind of style and involving technology and placing the accountability on the learner first? Have you come up with or have you encountered? There's definitely a few common things from an instructor standpoint. I think one of the biggest call an error perhaps that'll happen is they'll present information that needs to be done ahead of time. So here, please read this chapter, watch this video, listen to this podcast, and then they'll repeat that same information in person, right? And at that point, you're kind of saying like, well, actually my pre-work isn't necessary because if you come, I'm going to tell you the same information anyway. And so you really need to be able to put into place, how can you assess if the learners understood the pre-worker and where are they at? So that way you can create a desirable difficulty with the time that you have together. And the desirable difficulty is really important because it's the, how are you going to challenge someone in a way that they may fail and you're there to support and coach and guide through that, or it's just hard enough that they have to work to understand what the challenge is and the solution and how that fits into the mental models that they're starting to construct, because that's where the most enduring learning happens what are they looking to get out of class that day? Um, you can try some metacognitive practices. If they can set goals for themselves for the day, and that's something that you can review over time, you might be able to see where they're at after that pre-learning. The other is some students may not do the pre-learning, right? They may not do that flipped component before they come in. And then there's accountability. So if you have um, things like team-based learning or problem-based learning, the group will hold the learners accountable for whether or not they're prepared. Um, and so some of those models can be helpful. And otherwise, if it's just the instructor component, then their ability to perform in whatever the task is, is going to be hindered. Um, but it should not force the instructor to then go back and re-lecture for everybody else who did prepare. I think you know, one thing to highlight is that, um, you know, I, I love the flipped classroom, but to 
kind of generalize this, I think the principle we're we're highlighting with the kind of what paradigms need to change is this changing that from me being uh, a lecturer and me being more of a guide. And the flip classroom is one pathway uh, to do that. Um, but I think to your point, Galena, about you know putting the uh, onus on the students, uh, I think that really is at the core about what we're learning about how learning <laughs> is actually effective, right? So learning takes work. So, I mean, if the old paradigm was me standing up at a lecture uh, and working <laughs> and somebody passively sitting in the audience, that, that was really not effective. And so, you know, the flipped classroom is one way to do it. And, and there might be many other ways, but at the end of the day, that common theme here and what I think maybe the listeners can think about in their own contexts and environments is, you know, how can they be more of a guide on the side, helping their their learner be active with the material? I think uh, Justin was talking about, you know, looking over the document many times. In laboratory medicine, we've got our our SOPs, and you, know, you could be sat down at a computer expected to read some SOP. But like Justin said, he's like, I I just want to have a conversation about that. What what does this really mean? Like I'm reading these words. But um, you know, what's the story, right? And that, that really connects to how can learning really be uh, impactful and sustainable and transferable to different environments is connecting the learning to what we already know, right? And that's what comes from these kinds of conversations. Let's do an example, right? So if I think back to um, my least favorite parts of, of MLS, uh, my MLS program, and there are the moments that are just brute force memorization, right? If we had to learn about all the minerals and what happens if you have too much of them or not enough of them. And there's really, you know, you set up the tables and you just look at them over and over and over again. For those moments where it's just requiring pure memorization, you know, what happened to me is I learned it. <laughs> I got an A in my exam. And then guess what I did with that knowledge? I threw it out the window because it wasn't important to me. I didn't apply that knowledge. So in those cases, how do you create an environment where it sticks to long-term memory? That's a great question. And some of it, I think it comes to repetition over time and then having having the environment in which you're going to apply it. And so creating some of those scenarios, maybe it's lab scenarios and challenging people to think and problem solve as opposed to just moving on to the next thing to, to route memorize. When it comes to things that you do need to memorize, there are tactics that can be very helpful to push it more towards that long-term memory store. If we think about recall and repetition, it's flashcards. Flashcards, hands down, are traditional, very effective method of memorizing things, but you're never going to get to that point where it's firmly embedded, where it integrates itself into a mental model until you can build context around it. Another example of, you know, the abstract components are like the, the co-ed cascades. You can memorize the factors in which order they're supposed to activate, but getting to the point where you have that conceptual knowledge of understanding, this is what happens when somebody is bleeding. And this is what happens when we transfuse this product. And, you know, there's this other disease state that's going on, requires much more context around what that 
base piece of information is, but you need that baseline knowledge. You need that baseline knowledge. So there's some degree of that memorization that's necessary to start building those layers of expertise. We call it scaffolding, building the mental models and some of that baseline information you have to have. And so some time, some pain <laughs> is spent in developing that, but then it's, it's important that we start building those next layers. Just like medical practice is advancing, right? We don't practice the same way that we did in like 1940. <laughs> you know, education science has advanced as well. And I think this is an example where I think for our listeners, you know, it's, you know, to, to challenge yourself to, the, you know, maybe you had to learn this by rote memorization, but maybe in order to be that guide on the side for your learner, you need to say, yeah, you know, I had to sit down and memorize this and, you know, I did well on my exam, but that's not the goal. You know, this isn't like college where you're going for an A on your exam. This is preparing you as a professional for real life where your knowledge is going to make a difference for a patient. So to do that, we might say, you know what, a better way, what we're learning about how's the better way to learn is, you know, I want you to make uh, flashcards. I want you to spend time uh, today making flashcards. And I want you to, instead of just writing down the exact phrases that you see in the books, I want you to paraphrase. So put it in your own words on that flashcard, right? Because we know that helps. Uh, make that transition into long-term learning, you know, and then exactly what Teresa is saying is to use those flashcards periodically that you come back to them. And then when you come across them and you struggle with it, you know, if you have one that you struggle with, then it's being active about, you tell the learner that, hey, you know, when you get to one that you, you flubbed and you missed, <laughs> you know, I want you to spend some time thinking about why does this fact matter for patient care? Right. And so to help to create that story on why it's important. And that's another way that that's going to stick in your mind. But in all these all these examples, it's about how can we be better guides to our learners, because our learners come to us in MLS programs and medical schools with 12 years of uh, K through 12, 13 years of great education and experience, understanding how to cram for the exam and do well. But it's not necessary, uh, or well, <laughs> high school teachers are gonna come firebomb my house now, but <laughs> you know, uh, the, the stakes are different when you're learning for it for some grade going forward versus if we are professionals and we're really learning it for practice to serve our community and our patients. So, so far, you know, we've talked about um, becoming uh, more of a guiding presence for a student or new hire or whoever, rather than, you know, being the sage on the stage that just shoves information um, at you. You know, we've talked about um, some more interactive techniques to uh, learn that information. Um, let, wanted to talk about other principles of education science that are out there um, when you think about creating training content. So I was looking at um, retrieval, elaboration, um, generation. Yeah, I think. Do you want to take those through, Teresa? Or yeah, 
I was, I, I think I got stuck at like the training component when I was thinking about it. I was like training and they get back to it versus like, you know, didactic material. And I was like, wait a mm-hmm. second, that's a, you know, potentially a unique challenge in the sense of you have the procedural type um, components to that. And it's not just the, here's the, you know, the background to that. Um, and some of this could be there, but I think that there are some different techniques. We think about, you know, we talked about recall. We talked about retrieval and we're talking about the flashcards. Justin mentioned elaboration when he was talking about writing things in your own words. So elaboration techniques is something you can definitely use. He talked about concrete examples and bringing it back to the patient, which I think above all can be incredibly helpful um, in the lab because, you know, we don't see the patient. And so uh, when, when you're going through and, you know, it's okay, well, why do we have to do whatever this is? Answering that why question can really help people associate the information with the patient and with who they are as that professional. And when it comes to, you know, we talk about professional identity and resilience and, you know, your, I guess, joy that you find in your profession and what you do every day, they connect. And so it's not wasted effort to tell that story and to make those connections and to spend the time trying to understand it at that level as well. Um, and so I think when it comes to some of those techniques, you know, Justin gave some of those examples um, and I think a great book, a great resource for uh, audience they might go to is there's a book called Make It Stick and it is uh, written in <laughs> plain English. It's it's not a very technical read. In fact, uh, my copy right now is lent out to one of my residents. And it's one of these books where it goes through these fundamentals that that uh, Teresa just laid out. And what's really nice is, um, you know, the whole book is absolutely brilliant. Uh, the last chapter, chapter eight. So if you have learners that are pressed for time, uh, that is really kind of the summation of it that kind of goes through and really nicely sums up all these principles. So uh, for our listeners, that book is Make It Stick. Uh, the last chapter in the book is kind of the Cliff Notes version, which is phenomenal. And hopefully it makes you interested to, to read the full book. But it gives these examples on you know how we can be more effective. Because I think if we're going to invest our time in, in teaching, uh, we certainly want that time to be well invested. I'd like to highlight something. I'd like to highlight something that you mentioned, and I've heard it from both of you now. Um, a word that's sticking out to me that I think is really, to me at least, would be really helpful in the education sense and working this in, and that's the word stories. I'm a big believer that people, humans, learn best through games, songs, stories. You both are educators. You let me know if I'm right or wrong in that. Um, but the stories are how historically we've been able to try. We pass down languages, our cultural history, moral, higher concept, cognitive concepts like moral compass. And so when it comes to patient practice and some of those even ethical choices that we have to make in our day-to-day work, granted they probably don't happen every day, but once in a while, something like that, or just again, higher level concepts in our day-to-day work. I think it's those stories that really can bring in a multitude of sensory and other parts of our identity into what we're learning. So now we're engaging multiple faculties of self. Absolutely. It's that's something that is so neat. Um, one of the things that uh, Teresa is phenomenal at is creating, uh, you know, 
uh, I'll use the word comics, but really the words uh, graphic medicine. So uh, to uh, teach uh, principles of transfusion medicine. Uh, so when she was uh, with us, with our group, uh, and I still mourn every day that she's away from our group, uh, but she created these transfusion tunes that are out there. So you can go on to social media and look up hashtag transfusion tunes and you can see Teresa's artwork. And what's so amazing, like Justin, you're pointing out is that you're, you're not only getting the, you know, just the facts of, you know, what's the scientific thing being said or explained in the graphic, but there's also these other inputs there, you know, that emotional struggle. And I think a lot of the transfusion tunes deal with some of those rubs uh, between the clinical service and the transfusion uh, blood bank. Uh, that kind of come up where, you know, sometimes there's frustration that we're like, God, they just don't get us. And then on the clinical side, they're like, God, they just don't know what it's like to be at the bedside, right? And, and those comics are wonderful ways to engage people. So like, for example, you know, I was, I started my social media journey in 2015, and I would often, you know, share uh, tidbits about transfusion medicine. And, you know, of course, uh, my mother and the other three people that followed me at the time would, would interact with it. But as soon as, you know, we have Teresa creating these tunes, all of a sudden, like, you know, internal medicine physicians are picking this up. You know, I end up doing a, a transfusion tune looking at, you know, what's the difference between blood safety and transfusion safety that put the emphasis on why the physician at the bedside really needs to understand some of transfusion principles for patient safety when we're transfusing them. And that got, you know, it wasn't just my, uh, you know, pathology, uh, you know, lab medicine peeps, which I love you. Thank you all. But, you know, a lot of people that I don't follow, I don't connect with really resonated with that because I think, Justin, what you're pointing out there is uh, story is king. The implication of what you guys are talking about is, is the, the person doing the teaching has to care about the work. It's not um, just something that they come in because they have to, it requires, it requires passion and it requires heart. And, and because out of that grows the creativity to create the comics and try to figure out how do you engage an audience. So then let me hear your opinion on this, right? Uh, in clinical rotations, I've been to facilities where everyone is required that's working on the bench. Everyone is required to train a student through a, at least one day of bench or clinical rotation. And what, what that comes down to is there's some people that don't want to do it. They, you know, either sit you down um, and they just have you read SOPs or, um, they'll make comments enough throughout the day that make you really not excited to be an ML in, in the MLS field. So is, is the recommendation there that we should remove, um, and only find those who truly have that passion and that heart to create the stories, to be doing that kind of training? I think that's kind of tricky. Uh, I think in an ideal setting, it would only be people who love what they're doing and are super passionate and are a joy to be around, right? But reality is that's definitely not always going to be the case. And 
we've probably all been in a situation where we've encountered someone that was toxic, right? Toxic in the that environment, toxic for their purpose being there and your purpose being there. Um, and you hope self-preservation kicks in because someday you might be the person testing their sample and you hope that you're competent, right? So <laughs> at the very least, maybe that component would kick in. But um, I think it, it's really about the culture in the lab and finding your people. And as a medical laboratory scientist, you know, finding those around you who can build you and give you that support, it's coaching and finding those coaches, people who can help you reflect on what's going on, what do you need to do next, and, and how might you do that? And when things aren't going well, how can you pivot? How can you find resources that the people who are supposed to be training you um, maybe aren't the best? Is there someone back in your program that you can reach out to? Is there a peer that's also rotating that can, that can help you with that? Or one of those who is passionate about teaching, is there something they can do to help if it's not something being addressed by management, by supervisory staff? Because if they're required to teach, then maybe they need training on how to teach. Um, maybe that's a gap that they have as well. If that hasn't been assessed, it's something that they can look at. I think that's a brilliant insight because, you know, you end up, um, I think, harming the environment and probably the student too, if we sort of give them an artificially, uh, you know, sunshine <laughs> picture, right? There's something to be said about, you know, a clinical rotation is to be there in the real world. And some of the frustrations of our work uh, certainly are a part of that. I think that you know, hopefully that the uh, leadership of our MLS uh, programs, our, all of our training programs are these dedicated uh, group of folks that, that you and Teresa are talking about. Uh, and then I think Teresa's point about, you know, faculty development, uh, you know, we need to kind of coach our faculty. And uh, I certainly have plenty of examples going through uh, medical school of, you know, faculty that just, uh, that medical students weren't allowed to uh, work with. <laughs> you know, there was this workaround. They were kind of cut out of the, of the environment and everybody was sort of trying to shoulder this. And uh, I really, instead of that pathway, I sort of, you know, encourage people to keep everybody involved and to, I think, coach people. Because uh, I think that's a key thing that we lack is we don't really often appreciate faculty development and that's its own science in and of itself right it's it's sort of a a cousin uh, or sister of this sort of learning sciences how do you do faculty development how do you do it well because if we go back to the earlier example of the flipped classroom um in that setting if you don't do faculty development uh, you know some faculty are really uncomfortable uh, managing questions that they're getting on the fly, right? Versus, you know, if it's their canned lecture, they know that like the back of their hand, they're the world's expert in that. Uh, they are 1000% uh, confident. But as soon as they're going to go into something and you don't know what that plan is, because that plan, that learning plan is going to be the, the conversation with the learner, guide them from where they are towards uh, where you want them to go and where they're interested in going, uh, you know, there's a lot more uncertainty uh, there. And that's where I think a lot of examples of flipped classroom things have failed. So 
at the core, whether it's flipped classroom or another technique, we need to really think about and be deliberate, not only in our teaching for those of us that are uh, the choir here, but we also need to think about how are we going to be the guides on the side and coach our, uh, our team members to be the kind of educators uh, that we're going to be proud to work with. Similarly to the challenges of changing the lecture to a flipped classroom, I could see there being similar challenges then to, uh, you know, with the pandemic of saying you used to teach this in-person classroom where you could gauge uh, an attentiveness of a learner. And now all of a sudden you have to learn a whole new platform of how you're going to deliver education you have to, um, you know, learn uh, whatever it is that you're using Moodle. I don't know if Moodle is still a thing, but uh, whatever whatever training platform you have, um, whatever le live lecture platform, and then you're asking a facilitator or a faculty member to change the way that they assess engagement. Um, do you have any... Um, suggestion with that difficulty? Do you see that come up? How do you tell Because I'm curious for me, because I, I switched to training in a virtual setting, and that's the hardest part. I'm not seeing their faces. I'm not seeing if they're off doing, if they're even there. Um, what do you do? What do you suggest for that transition? I think that's a shared experience and a shared pain for a lot, especially with the, the shift, the emergent shift that happened with COVID. And ideally, that's not the way it happens, right? You're not forced to flip things overnight, and then you have to kind of hobble things together, really taking a deliberate approach. And, you know, as adult learners, as educators, we're here to help facilitate learning. You're not there necessarily to enforce learning. Um, and so there's there's a component of, of self-awareness and self-responsibility that adult learners have. It's not necessarily your responsibility to make sure that they're paying attention in that moment. Um, so, you know, but it is your responsibility as an educator, perhaps to be uh, engaging with the content. So it's not as passive because it's more efficient, it's more effective, it's more enduring for that learner. Um, and so how do we take a deliberate approach to designing education for digital facilitation of learning? And part of that is, you know, backwards design. So what is it that we're trying to achieve? What is it that we're trying to get out of it? How might we assess that? And perhaps an in-the-moment engagement isn't the best assessment. Sometimes it is. In that case, can you do audience response? Is there a polling feature? Is there a way for them to get in and annotate on a whiteboard or, or do something together as a group? Maybe it's a think, pair, share, which in a virtual environment, maybe those are breakout groups. And that also gives learners a chance to check their understanding with peers and say, hey, this is kind of what I'm getting. What, what's your understanding of the concept? And it also helps them build kind of that barometer for self-assessment. And we know that for learners, one of the biggest indicators or one of the biggest predictive factors that we have with their success in going into a learning environment is what is their self-efficacy? How likely do they think they are to succeed at what they're doing? And what can we do to support that in a virtual environment? Um, and some of it are some of those techniques of reflection and, and having that that peer support as well. So how can we incorporate activities and things into the virtual environment um, and kind of shift again, potentially away from that more passive lecture model? And maybe it's a rethinking of, you don't necessarily need to see the faces if they're doing some of the activities, if they're going into these breakout groups and being interactive um, and a shift away from the, I must have full attention 100% of the time to, 
you know, it, providing resources and things. If they don't quite understand it, or if there's something that a knowledge check towards the end, um, or periodically they're like, oh, I don't really get that. What's a different resource that they can use on their own time potentially to to further their own understanding that others may not need. Yeah, I wanted to just highlight and underline uh, a word that Teresa said in there uh, that uh, reflection, right? Because I think that is. Um, you know, the underpinning of a lot of what we're having this conversation about today, because uh, none of us uh, are are batting a thousand <laughs> out there in the world, right? And uh, I think uh, for most of us, the way we get better is, is, you know, iteratively. And the way that that occurs is by what Teresa said about we need to reflect and the other thing, uh, another thing that she was highlighting was being deliberate about what it, what is that going to look like? What should this look like? So you know, the you know technology shouldn't be dictating uh, what you're doing uh, with your team, but you're thinking, what do I want to do? And you know, maybe there's a technology, maybe it's something old-fashioned, but that that reflection piece uh, is a key thing that. Uh, those of us as individuals uh, sometimes uh, neglect to think about. And I often think about, um, you know, I've had a bass guitar since I was a freshman in college because I couldn't take my drum set with me to college. <laughs> so I've been sitting in front of the TV, uh, you know, noodling the C major chord. Uh, you know, I, I've got nice calluses on my fingers. Uh, but I'm not going to be playing any live shows uh, in your town anytime soon, right? Because me sitting in front of the TV, just doing the same thing all the time. Yes, you know, my tone is on point. You know, I get a good, nice, robust note. I can fret very well, uh, but I haven't been deliberately reflecting on, okay, I've got this down. Where am I going to go to next? I think that's an essential component for all these components. How can I be a better coach to my learners? You know, how can I be a, a better uh, coach to my uh, other faculty? How can I be a better coach to myself? What do I need to uh, read and think about? If I can respond to what you brought up there, uh, because I really like this point that you've brought up about reflection and the sort of self-assessment. And as we're going through and talking about this guide on the side, there has been the other word that comes up for me in this way is confidence or self-confidence that you know the material better than you think you do. One of my mentors once said, as a medical technology, or I'm sorry, medical laboratory scientist, you are going to forget more things than many people will ever know in their lifetime. And I do really feel that that's, we are one of those fields where that's probably very true. And one of the things that coming up in the sense of the confidence, um, there's a book that I really like, and Justin, you might like this, as you mentioned, Bass, it's called The Music Lesson uh, by Victor Wooten. Oh, you're shaking your head, you know it. It's a wonderful, wonderful book, great in audiobook format, but they has that teacher and his name's Michael. And he's like, who are you, Michael? I'm your teacher. What are you going to teach me? Nothing but I can show you things. And like, I don't recommend this as a teaching style, like to open up a classroom, everybody's gonna be like, walk out and just put their hands up. Like, no, this is, no, that's not how I learn. But the point is with this teacher is that you intrinsically know this information. You know it better than you think. I just need to guide you to get to that conclusion because it's already in your head. And one of the ways that this has manifested for me is through my graduate programs, two of the biggest things that I learned how to do was to read and research to where 
previously, I felt that if someone would come to me and ask me, I am having, I need some answers on what it means to be a laboratory director as far as CLIA. I'd be like, I don't know, not my realm. But now I'm like, give me the weekend. I'm going to reach out to a couple people. I'm going to tap into my network of people that I know. I've got a few documents to go through and something, an article that I had in this class, just give me a weekend. I can get back to you. And I feel confident in my ability that I do know it better than I think I do in that moment. And where I am going in this sort of confidence about guide on the side is that I can see two things happening here. Um, in one aspect, confidence is built through that sort of self-learning and guiding of, oh, I really do have the the space and the ability to synthesize this idea. At the same time, though, what Teresa had mentioned about those sort of self-assessments and those checks along the way to make sure that if I'm walking that path, am I actually on the path at all? And to not wait until we hit a midterm exam and go through a grade and have all the anxiety of, I don't totally, that sort of like that self-doubt coming through. And so I like what's coming up here. And I do think that that's one of those habits that's form and that self-identity part about confidence and knowing your ability. And that's going to really help a student, not just coming into the field, but through the length of their career. Yeah. And one of the techniques that we can use to kind of support that and help build that growth mindset and things like that, um, and that ability to gauge um, our self-assessment, because initially we can be very bad at it, right? I think you kind of mentioned like that illusion of mastery where we we think we're really great at it, but in reality, not so much. <laughs> um, quizzing can be a very effective strategy for this in the education setting in the sense of low stakes quizzing. So not like, uh, it's the, the cram for everything so you can pass this big final, but low stakes quizzing allows us to check our knowledge. And then it allows us a safe space to learn. So if I think I know, I take this quiz and it shows me, this is what I knew, this is what I didn't know. And then you have the opportunity to fill those gaps. And sometimes coaching may be needed there um, where an instructor or a peer can step in and say, you know, you can have that conversation. This can be a very effective structure to have where somebody takes a quiz, you go over the quiz results with them and then provide coaching for what do you do next? Um, and quizzing itself can be a very helpful study tool in the sense of it tells you exactly what you know. Another method that you can use is, is mind maps, something Justin and I have been very um, uh, big fans of in terms of formative assessment. So if you have a learner and you have an abstract concept or perhaps what they're doing is they can memorize an example of something. And this is like you, you give a case study and they know the answer when it's that case study, but they can't extract those principles and apply them to a different situation. We have example versus rule learning and what can happen, what can, we can help learners in those situations by helping them write out what the hierarchical structure of that concept is and say, this is related to this, is related to this, is related to this, as opposed to it all kind of being one thing. And showing them and helping them compare and contrast um, can help them better organize a schema or a mental model of how they approach something. The other thing it can do is it can make somebody who thinks they know understand what they really know. Because if you can't, if you can't diagram that, if you can't write it out, if you can't demonstrate that, it's very obvious when you go to do a mind map and it's blank or it's missing big gaps. And that can be something that you can do over time to help them see their understanding. So what's a good uh, example of a topic for uh, an MLS student where mind map maps are effective and needed? Uh, 
in an experiment that Justin and I actually did um, using mind maps as formative assessment, this was with uh, residents um, where I was using it, but in transfusion medicine, so this would also apply for medical laboratory scientists. It was around what was their understanding with some of the different blood groups. So what can you recall, right? Because there's some of that route memorization that you need, like what's the frequency, what's the, you know, um, and some of it was around, okay, the if you're doing a DAT, right? And in what instances, are you going to do, is it gonna trigger you to go down certain pathways? And what are the disease states that might be associated with different kinds? And if you wanna understand how well somebody knows like a procedure, for instance, okay, well, can you do can you do that in a mind map? Can you show me what these different pieces are? Why are you adding the reagent here? And seeing how they populate that mind map can tell you a lot potentially about what they know. It might've just been, they didn't recall it at that time and having a conversation around that, but seeing how that evolves um, over time. So what I you'd like to use mind maps for is before you even start lecturing, right? So some of it's like, what information are learners coming in with? Throwing throwing the mind map exercise at them and say, okay, let's, you know, we're gonna talk about ABO. What do you know about ABO? What do you know about RH? And then you can start dispelling some of the misinformation and then start building from there. If everybody has the same basic information, you know you can start at the next step. Um, so it can also be a knowledge check. So if you do that pre-learning in a flipped classroom type setting, mind map can help you kind of understand where people are at as well. Just to highlight and piggyback on that, not only does it show you as, as the learner where they are, but then if you have your classroom, you know who gets it and who doesn't. And so that's where in a safe way, you know that, you know, this this person, you can say, hey, you know, uh, I see you did it. You, you understand this concept very well. Would you mind explaining it to the, to the group, right? And so you know who to reach out to as that coach, because that learner can really kind of put it in their own words and say it in ways that another, you know, person with their background and learning is going to understand understand it and, and really bring meaning to it. I think so far, the major theme of today's conversation is that in order to have successful long-term learning, it requires, uh, you can't be passive on either side. You have to be engaged and willing and collaborative, both as a facilitator um, and a learner uh, of whatever exercise that you're doing. And the medium for that, well, how do you get people engaged? You know, we talked about, um, you know, concepts like how do you make it entertaining? Um, how do you elicit an emotional response, right? To me, it's explaining the why, right? Why, why do you need to know this? Uh, because, well, the implications uh, in a clinical setting are these. Um, you know, you talked about the importance of community. So uh, everyone is engaging with each other rather than just one person uh, regurgitating all the information at you is saying, okay, well, um, let's all co-teach each other. Let's all engage with each other. Um, we've also talked about comics uh, in different ways to, uh, there's different uh, modes of learning, right? You know, you could be a tactile learner. You just, it could be visual. You need to write it, whatever it may be. Um, so comics is a, is a great visual way to learn. Um, hoping, uh, you know, we've talked about the COAG cascade um, and I know Justin, you, you've given some talks on it. Um, how do you, as another example, how do you make the COAG cascade something that's fun to learn and, and um, accessible to everyone? <laughs> Thanks for asking about it. Uh, this is something that, you know, Teresa and I have really kind of developed together and it goes back to these principles that we we're talking about you know we want to transform this into a an active 
thing and we want it to relate to what people already know we want them to put it in their own words and so what we've done is really kind of put together a we call it a game uh, a co-ed game but we basically are saying that i i sacrifice myself up to the group every time so i i tell them that i get uh stabbed uh in the side and i'm bleeding out and then you know their their role is to figure out okay how am i going to develop that thrombus at that site and you know we've gone about it a couple of different ways and and that's been really interesting to see we've done it when we have smaller groups we've done it on a tabletop with poker chips uh, as uh, platelets and uh, playing cards as the different clotting factors and using Teresa's art skills. Uh, we've got really great labeling of those now that also engage the learner. You know, it's it's it was, you know, it was it was literally like I think I spent like five dollars to get like some blank playing cards and then like uh, maybe another five dollars to get just blank uh, poker chips. And so it's a very low expense kind of thing that was done, but it kind of, um, it helps to demystify it. So the the coagulation cascade, it's not just these Roman numeral, numeral things, which increases this kind of cognitive load, right? Our mind's got to translate, what the hell is VII? Oh man, right? Um, and, uh, you know, to make it, we just write seven. <laughs> and, and, we uh, make it a game so that people can take this thing that classically has been like the and magic happens sort of abstract art and we actually sort of understand wait no no physically how is this working and then like why is why is it important uh that this can bind here, right? And, you know, we go back to these basic tenants as we go through this game of explaining kind of the story of how coagulation goes. We also have these deliberate pauses at different steps along the way to reflect and say like, you know, you know, why, what is the, you know, for example, in trauma, what's the triad of death? It's, you know, acidosis, um, uh, uh, low um, low body temperature and coagulopathy, and then it's like, oh yeah, the coagulation cascade. It's it's enzymes. So yeah, temperature and pH dependent. So okay, now now it makes sense to me why uh, you know it's really important when our patient comes in, and I guess now I'm talking for physicians in training. Why when the patient comes in the trauma bay, it's really important that we put on the uh, you know bear hugger on the patient to warm them up. Uh, you know, because we live in Minnesota, and so our trauma patients that are out on on cold uh, highways this time of year, uh, you know, we need to get them uh, warm. We've also done the session uh, similar, but we've done it if we have a larger group, like let's say 20 folks. Uh, like when I go teach uh, the paramedics this uh, students, it's usually a group of 20. We do like a live action role play where each person is, you know, somebody's fibrinogen, <laughs> somebody's factor 12. And, you know, and we they get to play that role uh, and get to understand, uh, you know, again, the same principles apply. People are learning the story. We're taking deliberate pauses so that they can put in their own words or connect. And a lot of times they didn't connect it. I mean, very, very basic things for, you know, all of us, whether it's physicians or MLS, like, you know, how does how does Coumadin or Warfarin work? You know, it, it's it's amazing how few of us actually know. We just know it's an anticoagulant. 
<laughs> but I think it's really important for us in the lab to understand, uh, you know, what's the proper way to reverse that um, to help guide physicians, because sometimes they don't understand, and it's obvious that they, it's important that they understand it. But through this way of, of story, them doing the action and just being that guide through it, again, all these principles that we've been talking about. And I, I think to be honest as well with the audience, you know, I, again, this was not something that I batted a thousand when I first did it, but, um, you know, because I just went uh, with it uh, over time, I've gotten uh, pretty darn good at, uh, you know, being able to, and what the, the critical skill is, I think, is it's just like, you know, if you want to learn the skill, uh, go and get involved with your local improv group. And so you're actually critically listening to what somebody is saying. So my skill that I've developed is not just like a skill in that I can come in as a, a big confident uh, guy, but I can, my skill is I can hear what the learner is saying happens next. And, and I can coach them around, guide them around uh, to the correct way of thinking through questions in most cases. Totally second the idea of an improv class in so many contexts. I think that's a brilliant idea. And, and here you've just inspired me to uh, create a Dungeons and Dragons based learning session of uh, complete the quest uh, of, um, you know, uh, a clotting of a wound or whatever it may be. So uh, lots of ideas. So thank you for that fantastic example. I think that really helps. Um, kind of tie a bow on a lot of the concepts that we've talked about is how do you make it engaging, fun um, for both the facilitator, for the learner, um, any other principles or um, kind of ideas um, that you want to share before we wrap up? I think Justin mentioned a resource earlier around Make It Stick. Uh, the book make it stick so that's definitely like a number one recommendation um and they use story to illustrate a lot of the examples so like you said it's a really it's a really easy read um and that will change your life if you're an educator a learner wherever you want to label yourself anywhere along the spectrum um will definitely change your life and then a master adaptive learner theory or the framework master adaptive learner is a big one so um, Dr. Bill Coutrere out of Vanderbilt and a team have made a, had a couple publications and there's also a book around that, but that would be my second recommendation. So first, a hardline agree with Justin, make it stick. Um, if you don't touch anything else, read make it stick. Um, and second would be anything along master adaptive learner framework. I am trying to figure out how in the world I get to uh, attend one of your guys's training sessions, because it sounds uh, like a lot of fun. And uh, the folks at Mayo uh, are very lucky um, to have you both. Um, if we can't attend one of your classes, because we're not at Mayo, um, we will share uh, links. So you have a comic book website, um, comic website that we can put in um, our podcast description. Is there any other resources um, that we can uh, place for our learners where they can access some of your guys's knowledge? 
An additional resource I would recommend is the learning scientists. So they have a lot of downloadable material and they really break down different learning theories and principles. So in practice, what would this look like? So what does retrieval look like? What does elaboration look like? Um, so definitely a, a great place to find some more resources as well. You know, one one uh, a third recommendation I just want to throw out for uh, the listeners because I <laughs> I hate myself if I didn't mention it uh, <laughs> is uh, just to, the the thought of gamification making something a game. I think a lot of times with our learners, one of the frustrations that that educators have is frustrated with low motivation for the learners to want to engage with the topic, and. Um, Game, creating a game out of something and uh, we'll share a, a link to a paper that talks about some principles of how to gamify but you know making a game and creating a leaderboard is a very powerful motivator for students one of my favorite stories here at mayo was we have a surgeon that's very um very uh awesome uh educator and he did a uh, surgical games right that all the residents participate in throughout their training here at the clinic and uh one of the things like i think one of the skills on there is like knot tying right so like how many knots can you tie in whatever time and then they go through and they 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 physically test them and write your score as a combination of how many can you do and then how many can uh, withstand the strength test right and one year i kid you not there was a medical student that was rotating on surgery and so they showed up to that session and they won and so uh, because they, they do this surgical games only twice a year, for half the year, a medical student had bested, you know, even the chief resident on service. And you can bet your bottom dollar that like those surgeons like spent like their night hours, <laughs> weekend hours practicing surgical knot tying. And I think that, you know, that's the same thing that can happen in our practice we need to be a little bit deliberate and thoughtful over what does that game look like in our context because again we want it to be something that is going to mean something if you're going to be a surgeon being able to efficiently tie a good strong knot is something good and so i think the challenge is for us in lab medicine to think about what what do those uh meaningful games look like in our context but that that's a third recommendation for people to think about those are fantastic examples. Thank you so much um, for the discussion, for your time, for the ideas. Um, I hope that uh, we, I think we all learned something um, and got a lot of creative ideas for um, how to be better teachers in whatever it is that we do. Um, that's it for our episode. Um, remember, we're all teachers. You don't have to be a formal MLS educator to be a teacher. We are always informally teaching, whether it's our children, our friends, whoever teaching is a work of heart. So hope you enjoyed this episode. See you all next time.